Thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Fisheries Pod. If you're of the generous sort, you can support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you're able to support the show with either a recurring or one-time donation. And if that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store. I'm Zach Crum, and joining me for today's episode are two guests, Steve Sammons, a research scientist at Auburn University, and Lawrence Dorsey, who is a regional fisheries supervisor with the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission. Steve and Lawrence have come on the podcast today to discuss their new research on how introduced Alabama bass alter black bass species assemblages in reservoirs throughout the southeastern United States. This study will soon be published in the North American Journal of Fisheries Management, and I'm excited to get the scoop on Alabama bass from two of the authors themselves. Welcome to the podcast, Steve and Lawrence. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you, Zach. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to chat about an issue that I've kind of been hearing a lot of buzz about, I think, in the last, gosh, I don't know, four or five years ago, as long as I've been really kind of had my head in the fisheries world. So I'm really excited to chat with you guys about this stuff. So I guess to kind of get us started here on Alabama bass, so what are they? Where are they from? Just some general info there to kind of familiarize yourselves. I'll give that one to Steve. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... Uh... Alabama bass are uh, a species of black bass that was described in 2007. They are were formerly considered a subspecies of spotted bass. Uh, they are found in the Mobile Basin of Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, and a little slice of Tennessee. They are fish that can live in rivers, streams, reservoirs. They get to fairly large sizes, which makes them pretty attractive to anglers. Unlike what was considered northern spotted bass, now would just be spotted bass. Uh, um, they get, they routinely get five pounds. Six pounds isn't that uncommon. Seven, and these are the ones that they've stocked out in California that now get double digits by feeding on trout. And so... They have been like a lot of other black bass, not named largemouth bass or smallmouth bass, have not been studied all that well. That even though they form the basis of pretty important, economically important fisheries here in Alabama, particularly all along the Coosa River chain of reservoirs. Coosa River is a relatively productive system, so they routinely reach three to four pounds. And so if anglers are tournament bass fishing there, they are, by and large, using Alabama bass as the, as the basis of their tournament weigh-ins, their bags. They have been stocked outside their native range here and there in the past. Uh, I mentioned already California brought some over. I don't even know when that was. It was a while ago. They've been over there a while, decades and decades. In the 1970s, they were put into Lake Lanier which is just outside of Atlanta, Georgia. It's actually at the top of the Chattahoochee River Basin, where they have really done a, a darn good job of taking that reservoir over over the years and, and create a heck of a fishery there. And uh, it gets a lot of notice. A lot of locals, that's all they fish for, either that or the, or the striped bass that are in there as well. 
And then subsequently from there, they were moved into several North Georgia reservoirs back in the nineties, eighties, something like that. Again, this is historic. And they did, uh, they did what we now know is not that uncommon for them to do. They rapidly eliminated smallmouth bass fisheries in those, in those reservoirs. I should note that those reservoirs were in the Tennessee river drainage in Georgia. So, so they had native smallmouth bass in them. And so they did all that kind of stuff that you would expect them to do, you know? And so that's kind of a, a kind of a background of what Alabama bass were, are, and, but what we're talking about today is a whole lot more current. So I guess from an angler's perspective with all the different black bass that you could encounter and some of these drainages, how do I go about identifying an Alabama bass versus a large mouth versus a small mouth? Okay, so they have a uh, tooth patch on their tongue, a very visible tooth patch, much like a spotted bass does, truthfully. And that separates them from largemouth bass for sure. They don't have the vertical bars like a smallmouth bass does, so they don't really look that much like a smallmouth bass. You probably would not have too much trouble telling a pure Alabama bass from a pure smallmouth bass. Uh, I know Lawrence is going to talk a little bit later about what happens when they start reproducing with each other, but that's a different story altogether. But in, in the pure form, they're not that hard to tell apart. It's a whole lot harder to tell them apart from native spotted bass, but they are, they, they too can be told apart by lateral line scales and uh, circumpeduncle scales around the tail. They're, they're actually pretty distinct. So, so there are ways to do it. Don't ask, don't, you know, it's not like they're impossible. Some of the other bass species are nowhere near as easy as they are. Yeah. So then I've heard a lot, like I said, you know, over the course of the last five years or so about how they've kind of spread. So how was it that they spread throughout the rest of the Southeast, you know, beyond, like you said, that Georgia, Slover of Tennessee, you know, how did they get elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, as Steve said, you know, we've, we've kind of been able to build a little bit of a chronology of their movements, you know, after they were introduced into Lanier and then those North Georgia reservoirs, probably about the same time they went in those North Georgia reservoirs, or maybe even a little bit early, they got translocated into the Savannah system. So you're talking about Hartwell, Clarks Hill, Russell, those, those lakes on the Savannah River chain. And then in, in, in my part of the world in North Carolina, um, we first started seeing them in earnest in Lake Norman, um, which is the largest reservoir we have in the state in about the 2000 is a good marker. You know, with any kind of introduced fish, it's always probably a year or two lag, depending on how you know, easily they reproduce before you start really picking them up when they're in the system. But that's a good gauge. And those fish really, you know, all those, those movements, not really sure about the linear movement, but, but the rest of those were, were angler movements. State fisheries agencies weren't moving those fish around. In the case of Lake Norman, and we can probably get into it a little bit, but in that particular case, you know, it was a situation where for years and years, that reservoir is a very large reservoir. It's in the Piedmont region of North Carolina, which typically has more productive reservoirs. But this reservoir, due to limnology, the watershed, the upstream reservoirs, just is not very productive, especially for its size. And there was a lot of angler discontent with poor largemouth bass fishing. And the anglers sort of felt like the answer to that was to bring in what at the time, as Steve mentioned, was Alabama spotted bass, because they did see, you know, it, back then there wasn't the internet, but there were certainly magazine articles and enough chatter between anglers that they knew what was going on in the Coosa River drainage 
and they thought, well, if largemouth bass aren't working here, these Alabama spotted bass would be better. So that, in almost all certainty, that's the reason they were moved into the Catawba River Basin in North Carolina, which is really kind of the epicenter for us here. Gotcha. Okay, so then what were kind of some of the first impressions there? Were people concerned about them? I mean, the thing with it seems to be with Alabama bass is that they look very similar to what we already have. They don't look like this crazy foreign invader. So what was kind of the uh, initial thoughts on their presence there? Well, I can tell you there's kind of a couple of thoughts. There's the angler track on it, which the anglers thought, um, and still there's a good percentage that do, that feel like it was a great thing for Lake Norman. Um, And we can talk about why that's not the case. Even outside of Lake Norman, that's really proven to be the case. From a biologist standpoint, uh, we were concerned because anytime you have an introduced fish, you just don't know where it's going to go. Um, I'll be honest with you, as a, a longtime biologist here, I was concerned about Lake Norman, but where my mind didn't go that it should have gone was, well, where is this going to spread to? And and not thinking that these fish would be moved across the geographic expanse they've been moved over over the last 20 to 25 years. I, I, I didn't see that coming. You know, at Lake Norman, they basically, for the most part, except for a few parts of the reservoir, have have outcompeted and dominated and removed, you know, kind of kind of extirpated largemouth bass. Now, that's not completely the case. There are largemouth bass out there, but their numbers in their traditional areas have been greatly reduced. And that's some work that I did, you know, working with Duke Energy back in 2014, 2015 timeframe to show that. But you know, since that time, I can tell you that, you know, the anglers have seen the effects of them and there's definitely some concern out there on the landscape. Some with the largemouth bass fisheries, but there's a tremendous amount with smallmouth bass fisheries. And I know we can get into that as we go along. Yeah, I was going to say that leads us, I guess, pretty well into your most recent study that you guys are looking to publish here soon. So I guess, what did your study find were some of the ways that Alabama bass have started to impact uh, native or perhaps desirable black bass fisheries here throughout more of the Southeast? Well, one thing that I'll mention too, before I'll let Steve kind of start that and then I can come in behind him is one of the things that's been helpful throughout this process is, as Steve mentioned, you know, Alabama bass has been separated out into a species, but along with that has been the genetic technology to be able to determine species composition of these fish. We were able to do that at Lake Norman fairly early on, but it's really helped us to kind of figure out Maybe not what we wanted to know, but what we found out is, is how bad this, this, this you know, genetic mixing problem is. But I'll let Steve talk about the, the larger paper um, that he shepherded all of the state biologists on to get data and, and put it all in a really good form. So, yeah, before I really get into the reservoir stuff, we had been struggling with Alabama bass in these river bass that I've been studying in Georgia, particularly. I mentioned that they were put in Lake Lanier. One thing we know about this animal, they don't stay where you put them. And they migrated upriver, which is not that surprising, but they've been hybridizing there with native Chattahoochee bass, which is a newly described species of red eyes. They have also moved downstream into the river below Atlanta and and all through really the, the Chattahoochee basin. And they've done some pretty heavily intergression with shoal bass down there, which is where I first ran into them. They've been put into the Okmulgee River uh, along with shoal bass. Shoal bass were there first, but they were both introduced there when they intergressed there. 
And so we had been, we, and, and I should also say that the Bartram's bass work in South Carolina, that's their main problem there too, is, is intergression first in reservoirs and then upstream. So this had been such a rare bass slash river creek concern that the whole thing from North Carolina, when it first landed on my desk as the journal of, of the Siafwa, was an eye opener to say the least. Because <laughs> I'm I'm seeing all these effects in these river low to connected systems, not thinking anything of what their impacts might be on a reservoir. I mean, a lot of the reservoirs here, at least in, in Georgia, had been impacted for, oh my gosh, I, I was not even hadn't even gotten to my bachelor's degree yet when they were already in there. So those impacts were a long time ago. And and so, you know, when we first, when Lawrence first shared that that data from Lake Norman, that was that was a game changer to me. I guess I'm I guess I'm gonna go a, a little far afield here in a way, just to say this is one of the great benefits of having fisheries meetings. If you're a younger fisheries professional and you don't you think that going to fisheries meetings is all about the talks? I'm here to tell you it's not. <laughs> You're missing some of it. <laughs> so we were at the CIFWA meeting in Hilton Head, South Carolina, and we a group of us went out to lunch, and it included Lawrence and a couple of his North Carolina cohorts, it, and, uh, a couple guys from Tennessee, a couple guys from South Carolina, and the conversation just generated towards Alabama bass and all of a sudden everybody started throwing all of their horror stories up on the table and we're like holy cow this is like not just an isolated problem here and that was the genesis literally of this paper was actually at lunch during the CIFWA meeting in South Carolina and I believe that was in 2019 and and so the networking is such an important part of our profession that I think sometimes is unappreciated. And so the one huge benefit we have in reservoirs that we did not have for the most part in all these rivers and streams where we were just chasing around the current scenario and going, well, how long has this been going on and where did this come from and how fast did this happen? We didn't have, you don't have a lot of time series data on streams and rivers. Well, you have that in reservoirs. And honestly, when I first came on the scene, if you will, you know, in the 90s at the reservoir committee in Southern Division, one of the big talks back then was we were starting as a profession to really develop standardized sampling. It was a big conversation point back then because it was relatively new. Like, there was some of it going on, don't get me wrong, but as far as like a true statewide effort or reservoir effort to standardize everything so it was done the same way, same places sometimes, the same, you know, that was a new thing. Well, here we are, we're, we're 30 years down the road. Now we have those data sets that when I first came on the scene, everyone was lamenting they, they didn't have. Well, we see the value of it now because with reservoirs, we actually could see what happened and how fast it happened and so that's really was it fit our river stuff so well because we didn't know for sure how long some of this had happened or how quickly it happened and now you can use their data and say well we don't we, you know we can't say this was exactly what happened but it looks a lot 
like what they're seeing now, like Lake Norman right now, or some of those Western North Carolina reservoirs right now, what they look like either abundance wise or genetics wise, which we'll get into in a minute, is what we're seeing in like the Chattahoochee River, where there's like almost no pure fish. And you're like, oh my God, you know, what in the world, how did this happen? How, where, when did it happen? How long did it take? Well, the answers are probably not that long ago and really fast, <laughs> so, you know, um, so, so what we did was that kind of, that meeting at Hilton Head kind of generated a group of us to get together basically in an email group and start pulling together everything we had. And at the same time, coming out of COVID anyway, I should say, coming about that same time, the reservoir committee in both the Southern Division and the one in the North Central Division decided it was time to have a reservoir symposium. Uh, we had, the last one we had, was in Atlanta, Georgia in 2007. And so it was about that time. It had been 14 roughly years. So it seemed to me like, well, this multi-state, multi-reservoir trend series stuff that we had just had on paper would make a perfect paper for this because it's a broad picture. And oh, by the way, we were trying to like, all these reservoir symposiums have always been trying to summarize this current state of reservoir science and also prognosticating towards the future. Well, this was a perfect paper for that because the current state of reservoir management has all of a sudden altered drastically and the future is not bright. So that's kind of how it came together. And again, those standardized data sets from particularly North and South Carolina, or I'm sorry, North Carolina and Tennessee, and then some in Georgia really, really painted the picture and that states on the outside of this looking in uh, and not in a good way because <laughs> they're looking in at a tidal wave that's heading towards them. <laughs> you know, it really caught their attention. And Virginia is petrified. I was going to say, yeah, because I'm from Virginia. And that's why it's kind of started to really catch traction there, I, I think, a lot. And that's why I heard about it. But yeah, so basically you, you pulled all these data sets together from all these different agencies. So what were some of the trends that you started to see, I guess, we could talk about both genetic, how genetic composition change, and then maybe how size structure and then things like other uh, bass populations changed in, in response to their presence. Right. So what we, what we, we could have gone a lot of different ways, but since it was a broader paper, we decided to keep it pretty simple for now. And it also wanted to give opportunities for some of these biologists to do their own publications with their data a little more in right. depth, which one is already been done, as a matter of fact. So we, we concentrated on simple relative abundance trends, which we had from the data. And then for other reservoirs, where particularly where non-largemouth bass are, a, are a, a thing, you know, a fishery of some kind or an importance, the genetic angle, you know, which is not time series, it's a snapshot, but it's pretty compelling, you know. And so the time series stuff was a repeated pattern of a rapid takeover of Alabama bass once they get established. The severity of which did vary somewhat among reservoirs. Some of the ones in Georgia, for instance, which have a longer time series, the Alabama bass are still the dominant fish, but largemouth bass didn't totally go away in some of those. Other ones like the aforementioned Lake Norman, 
the one in Tennessee, which is Parksville Reservoir. It's on a it's on the Ocoee or the Hiawassee. I can't remember which, but either way, it flows into the Tennessee River. So it's obviously a vector for this. They they also you know both of those the largemouth bass fishery just went away went away i mean i can't even say it any other than way than that like it does not exist anymore and i said this in a, a talk that i gave at southern division until then i thought largemouth bass were bulletproof i didn't think anything could take out a largemouth bass population but i was obviously wrong because it is striking the data itself is striking to see how completely they took it over and how rapidly they took it over, which are both frightening as hell, really. I mean, basically, from the time that you detect them, you've got 10 years. And at that point, your bass population is going to be completely altered, probably forever. Gosh. Well, you know, we had... We had, you know, the challenge in the 90s, you know, is we had this largemouth bass virus that came out and there was a lot of concern about that. And there were some kills, um, nothing huge. And we did a lot of surveillance on it, found that we had it. It was pretty widespread, but never saw any real serious effects. And every once in a while, you'll hear biologists talk about some impacts that they're having and they'll trace it back to LMBV. So it's still out there on the landscape. But, you know, as Steve said, I mean, this was, and in my opinion, part of it is, so it's a replacement, right? But it's also, in my opinion, a replacement with an inferior fish. So, you know, you're never going to get, even even if it, in their native range, you're never going to get the largest largemouth bass to be the same size as a large, the largest Alabama bass. But what we're seeing is, is that for the most part, and there are exceptions just like there are anything else, these Alabama bass aren't performing as well outside of their native range in terms of their overall you know, maximum growth and, and those kinds of things that they do in their native range. And so you've got this, you know, it would be one thing, I guess, and, it, and again, from a conservation perspective, you wouldn't want to see a fish population species go away, but you could, from an angling perspective, you could make the trade-off, well, we're, we're trading a smaller fish for a bigger fish, you know. But that's not really what's going on. It's, it's actually the reverse. And then when you get to what you're talking about with the impacts on native spotted bass and smallmouth bass, you're talking about eliminating, not reducing a species to maybe just a baseline level, which is where we are in a lot of our largemouth. They're still there. They're just greatly reduced. And their habitat that they're, they're found in have changed. They've been much reduced. But when you talk about native smallmouth bass and spotted bass, you know, you're talking about eliminating that species, not reducing it, eliminating it over time. And we've seen that in Georgia. That groundwork's already been laid and it's being laid and I would say built on every day in, in Western North Carolina, our, our smallmouth populations. Jeez, that's crazy. Yeah, they, uh, you know, so our data, which is, you know, basically it's most of, most of that data is in North Carolina with a little bit in South Carolina. And, and it's an ongoing process right now, but but it looks like a lot of their data is showing a genetic takeover, if you will. I found it interesting. I've seen the Georgia's talk twice. The Georgia guys talk twice now. I just saw I saw it again at Georgia AFS. And one thing that struck me was, and now they weren't doing genetic testing 
in the very beginning of all this because this was happening in the 90s and into the early 2000s but you know they they were you know whether whether it was literally a displacement and hybridization or just hybridization but the bottom line is is that they have some really scary points on their trend lines where like in one lake i think it's the last smallmouth bass that was ever observed was 2004 so for and they sample it every year so i mean you know i mean you're talking about okay so we're talking almost 20 years ago that fishery is now gone um and it's not coming back you know it's not like it magically re, re and, and they had another one where it's a little more recent but i still think it's like 10 years since the last time they have observed a single smallmouth bass out of some of these reservoirs and it looks like that's where we're heading in in western north carolina uh it's just crazy i mean you know and also georgia has tried to stock them to restart them and that doesn't seem to do anything and i mean it's important to note there's so many any any science any fish scientist hearing this is going to say you know have a lot of questions and we for, can certainly say we have no idea the mechanisms none zero zilch all we have is this is the stark reality and why and how this is happening is still left up to you know imagination science fiction whatever you want to call it but it ain't good i mean you know you can argue about why it's happening or how it's happening but i mean you know considering it's a 10-year window and they're all gone i mean it's almost pointless to, at this point to even care even even though i'm a scientist and would love to know and we all would love to know tell me how in the world alabama bass eliminates largemouth bass from a 35,000 acre reservoir in 10 years i would like to know that you know but i have no idea you yeah. know um you know but it's it's crazy the genetics impact were were less surprising just because of all the stuff we see here on our rivers um you know we've been playing the game forever i mean my god sampling on the chattahoochee river between west point reservoir and atlanta as a bass biologist who studied this critter for at least 25 30 years i get fish every single time i go up there and look at it in my hand and go bass that's all i know what this is i have no idea what this is it's some kind of a bass you know and i'm not a half of them are like that you know so we know the genetic impacts are pretty severe but again all of those impacts have always been until this recent thing have been on these lesser range bass species red-eye bass shoal bass you know guadalupe bass in texas you know and, and they've always been at the pearl of a larger ranged species you know well here we have a, a restricted range species eliminating the most widely two most widely distributed bass species in north america rapidly so this was a surprise there too i mean you know and you know it's it's uh it's tough and and the genetic stuff is a little harder just to, to, uh, to for the public to get because even we can't tell them apart anymore um yeah. but if what happens in western north carolina follows what happened in north georgia and what happened to the bartram's bass in the savannah river reservoirs in another 10 years there's there won't be any more debate because there won't be anything in there that even looks like a smallmouth bass anymore you know so you won't even have to sit there and wonder <laughs> so what does that mean from an economic standpoint i mean i know tournament angling is is pretty important in some of these states and 
I tournament fished in college and I know it's, you know, you're, you spend a lot of money in a hotel and gas and for all your equipment and stuff. So is there a predicted kind of economic impact to some local communities there? Yeah, I don't, I don't know that we've gotten that far yet, although you're, you're probably certainly not off. I mean, just thinking about it, you know, there are people that will go to reservoirs just to target largemouth bass or go to reservoirs in our state in Western North Carolina just to target smallmouth bass. And so if those fish aren't there anymore, there's obviously you can make the the assumption that, you know, there's going to be a potential reduction in angling or at least people are going to try to go somewhere else. Now, there are going to be people that, you know, they don't care what they are. They're just going to go out and fish and catch fish because they, they enjoy catching fish. You know, so there's that component to it. But I can tell you in some reservoirs, like I've noticed just looking at tournament weights on the Savannah system where they've had a lot of impacts from Alabama bass, you know, they're they're their bag weights are down. Just If you're just looking at from an angling, a tournament angling perspective, and again, that's one way to look at it. There's multiple ways. It can't be good for a reservoir that was, you know, able to produce X, you know, number of pounds was the winning weight to now you've got a 20% or 30% reduction in that number that's the winning weight. Um, yes, the person won because they caught the most fish, but at some point the tournament's start getting concerned because they need they, they love having those large weights right that's that's part of the lure of of tournament fishing and, and particularly the big tournament fishing so what that impact really is I'm, I'm not sure that anyone's mentioned it I know that the major uh, fishing organizations are at least aware that this is going on we've got an opportunity coming up in our, our part of the world uh, major league fishing is holding a big event in two weeks at Lake Norman and we're going to have the opportunity to interact with anglers at the show coming into their trade show we're also we've been told we're going to be able to get on on tv probably one of our administrators will get on tv and that that's going to be a major push to talk about that because really and truly and i and again we i may be jumping the gun it's going to take anglers making the decision across the board that they're not going to move these fish anywhere else that because you know we're not moving them there's probably not any other forces except through connected reservoirs. You know, they, they will move downstream or upstream if there's connectivity there. But when you're talking about moving from one watershed to another that's not connected, it's going to take some some will on the part of the angling public to say enough is enough. We're not moving. Right. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. It's good that you're going to kind of get the opportunity to hopefully communicate that with people. I know just getting the word out about something like that will probably go a long way. So, yeah, I mean... Tournament anglers are not going to go away because Alabama bass are there. As a matter of fact, they're probably the ones putting them in in a lot of cases because they like them. You know, one, one of the things that we noticed down here, which has nothing to do with Alabama bass, but it kind of does in a way. When, when uh, LMBV hit Lake Eufaula and, and the growth slowed down and there was a 16-inch minimal on there at that time, the tournament guys were really unhappy with the whole situation because they fr- frankly could not weigh in a five fish limit with this, with slow growth, a reduced population and a 16 inch minimum size limit. There was, you know, a, a whole lot of people weren't even weighing a fish in, in some of these tournaments. And of course, I'm not talking about the elite series people or stuff like that. I'm talking about the stuff that goes on on a regular basis on these bigger reservoirs, like every week or every twice a week or whatever and and they really you know weighing in fish obviously it's something with prestige or whatever but also if you're on a point system or something like that you know every fish counts 
if it gets weighed in, even if you're not going to win the tournament, because looking down the long road for angler of the year or whatever else, you know, so that's a big deal. And, you know, they weren't harvesting fish anyway, as a general rule in Lake Eufaula, period. So, so they literally decided to drop the length limit to 14 inches because it wasn't going to affect harvest at all. And it actually allowed these guys to weigh in almost twice as many fish. And they were super happy and everything's went all the problems went away, even though the growth never really improved any or anything like that. They like the way in fish. Well, the fact is, is Alabama bass are a lot easier to catch sometimes than largemouth bass. They tend to school together. They tend to go offshore. They tend to strike topwater lures or stuff like that. They're more aggressive. They're easier to fool, whatever it is. And so you know that that they're not there are people that love to go fish the savannah river reservoirs for instance i know plenty of them that love to go fish there because they're going to catch some fish man they're going to catch some fish so i don't think there's really going to be much of an economic impact from that because i don't think they're going to go away but we're on the cusp of smallmouth bass land and that's a different world so when you get into smallmouth bass dominated or just exclusive fisheries well those people they don't want any other bass they want smallmouth bass so you know if they can't get smallmouth bass i do think that's where you would see some serious economic impacts you know and we're not there yet I guess the first one could possibly be the one in, in Lawrence State, uh, Lake Fontana, which is a pretty, a pretty well-known smallmouth bass fishery. But the other ones are right at the edge, and that's where we're trying to beat the drum as loud as possible. Because let's face it, if they get into Dale Hollow Reservoir in Tennessee, you're talking an economic meltdown. No, I, Lawrence and I both went to Tennessee Tech. We've been on, on Dale Hollow. There is no reason to fish Del Hollow for anything other than them, because the rest of that lake is just a barren wasteland. <laughs> it's water that's like tap water, you know, has like, you know, five grams of, mill of phosphorus per 5,000 acres, and it doesn't grow a lot of fish. It's a perfect smallmouth bass lake, but, you know, you're not going to trade six and seven pound smallmouth bass for three pound Alabama bass. You're just not. You know, and if that lake gets taken over, there's entire communities that are going to take a humongous hit because there's guides. There's people who go there just to catch smallmouth bass. They're not going there to catch three pound Alabama bass. You mentioned about Virginia. It's the same thing. If it gets in all those rivers in Virginia that are currently 100 percent a smallmouth bass fishery, who knows what's going to happen? I've had guys call me about, oh, what about the Susquehanna? I'm like, man, they're 150 miles away from the Susquehanna. If I were you, I'd be really, really wary. And, you know, from there, what about Lake Erie? Who knows? Where did this end? We don't know, you know. But I think where we are, where especially I am in the Deep South, economic impacts are probably negligible so far. But, I mean, it's not hard to see. What's going to happen if they just move a little bit farther north than they are? And they're already heading in that direction. Yeah. So I was going to say, what is kind of the theoretical limits of their, their northward expansion now? I mean, I know like South Central Virginia is kind of where it's at now, right? But how could that change theoretically going forward? 
Yeah, well, that's a question that Steve and I talk about a lot and others talk about is is what are the factors that are going to limit this? And and at least in my state, there's there's one couple of instances of places, at least one that comes to mind um, where we've got a very turbid reservoir, a real silty bottom, just really classic largemouth habitat where the agency back in the 70s stocked spotted bass in a reservoir above it. Um, and that spotted bass colonized the river from the, the, the upstream reservoir to this particular reservoir. And then sometime in the late mid 2015 timeframe, we got Alabama bass in there. And so they're in the river now too. And probably the fish that we thought are spotted bass really now are probably a hybrid or more Alabamas. But the bottom line is we just don't see anything other than largemouth bass in this reservoir. Um, and it's a large, it's a large reservoir. So, so, so there's that. And then Steve and I have talked about you know, vegetation, you know, uh, submerged aquatic vegetation or any kind of vegetation, aquatic vegetation as being a limiting factor from some of the stuff he's worked on. So there's that. And then the thermal limit of these fish, that's the big question. You know, uh, does it bleed over into the thermal profile of a smallmouth bass as you go farther north? Because where we're seeing the impacts now is on the southern range, native range of the smallmouth bass. Um, and so, you know, as we go farther north, uh, but, you know, we have largemouth bass, bass in those systems as well. So it's not like it's totally foreign, but it's just the unknown of what does it look like. And, and again, is there a limiting factor out there? And we haven't really nailed one down yet. I, I wish we did. I, I, I want to. I want to get some factors that I know, OK, this is why, where we're not going to get them. No matter how many people put in here, they're not going to live and we're going to be good. Unfortunately, we're we're not there yet. I'm hoping maybe in the next five to ten years we can get there before before we find out anecdotally or empirically, you know that that's that this this is the limiting factor. So I guess if if you could caution a fisheries manager from another state that hasn't had to deal with them yet, you know, what are some ways that we can go about mitigating um, their spread or their potential impacts? Do you guys think? Well, I mean, we've tried, other states have tried, we, you know, we're doing this podcast today as part of this. I mean, we're trying at every turn to get the message out and we're trying to backfill that message for, at times with not only this is, you don't want these fish, but this is why and to show anglers, you know, what we've seen. And in all honesty, a lot of anglers are seeing that. I, I've had anglers approach me, fish the Catawba River chain, which contains Lake Norman. And they say, oh, well, I thought they were great for Lake Norman, but I really wish they didn't get into Lake Hickory or Lake James, which are upstream reservoirs. And I, and I, I quickly have to say, well, you know, I wish it worked like that, but it didn't. And I learned that the hard way that these fish are going to get moved. And, you know, anytime you know this, Zach, but anytime you, you move something that shouldn't be there into the system, it's, it's really pulling the handle on a slot machine as to what you're going to get. And unfortunately, time after time, we've seen more times than not this fish have a negative impact on the existing black bass population. You know, there's a couple of places, and Steve and I, when we were doing the paper, we kind of saw this where, yeah, they've, they've, there's been an impact, maybe not as strong as in others, but you just don't know. And until we develop those kind of limiting criteria we talked about and we see that, yeah, it's really any person's guess as to how it's going to go. And so with that in mind, probably the only thing you can do is, is do the best you can to get the word out. And try to convince these folks that, you know, and I hate to say this because I, I love my state and I love my agency. You don't want to be like North Carolina when it comes to Alabama. Bass. Um, <laughs> really don't. Um, and I don't mean that from a perspective of we didn't manage this well. I just mean that from the perspective of what we're dealing with now, 
and the limited tools we have to respond to that now that they're in these systems and established. Um, our tools are extremely limited. As Steve mentioned, stocking, we're going to try some of that, but I don't, we don't, I, I know we're, we're kind of cautious, very cautious about it at best um, as to what the, you know, the, the chances of that working are. And so, yeah, there's, there's really, you know, uh, that, that would be the best thing to do. We're trying, I guess I'll finish the thought with, you know, we, we've, We've tried, and I'm going to keep trying to get some what I would what are called social influencers now, um, because you know Steve and I are professionals, but there's probably not a lot of people outside the fishery science world that get too interested in hearing large Dorsey and Steve Salmons talk about this. But if we could get somebody that really had a platform to talk about it, um, I think it would certainly not eliminate the problem, but it would go a long way to help and prevent it in these, as Steve called them, these these fringe areas where we're just on the cusp. Right. Yeah. It's, it's kind of funny because I know so many people that got into this field and just wanted to work with fish and that's just the, the rest of their life. You just work with fish, but it always comes back to the people. And it seems like, you know, engaging the public in something like this is one of the best ways to do it. I mean, whether, whether or not you're, you're comfortable with talking to the public, it seems like it's a great way to get the, get the word out. And the only way to kind of stop something like this. Yeah. So we've told States on the outside, so far, a few things. How much of this is feasible is all depends on bureaucracy of the state and and how laws, game and fish laws are enacted, which varies greatly from state to state. Some of it involves the legislature, some of it doesn't. It just depends, you know. But obviously, like Virginia has already put Alabama bass on their invasive species list. You know, uh, the do not ha- can't can't have one live in your possession at all, period. They've also, I believe, have banned live transport of fish in their state. So if you do get caught, that's an automatically going to be a big deal. But, uh, you know, those are, I mean, along with, of course, the, the education, you also have to enact some things that at least you can debate how much it, it helps, but it, it certainly shows you're serious about it. I mean, that you're taking this very seriously. I mean, there's not too many states where a bass, um, at least on the east, east of the Mississippi River, there's not too many states where a bass is on their noxious invasive species list. Right. You know? Yeah. But it should be. And and then what I've told a lot of the other folks is start genetically testing, especially if you have spotted bass already in your state naturally. Like at this point, we're almost getting to there. If you're in the Ohio River drainage, let's just put it that way. If you're in the Ohio River drainage, then you should be testing your spots because they'll show up there before you even know it. You'll never be able to tell them apart in your hand. If you knew that you were looking for Alabama bass, then you might be able to tell them apart. But if you're used to just handling spotted bass all the time, you know, they'll just slide right under the radar. And it won't be until the first person breaks your state record by two and a half pounds. That's when you're going to all of a sudden know, uh oh, and that's exactly what happened to Tennessee. And that's exactly what happened to Virginia. Both cases. They broke their state record by like two and a half pounds and they chested the fish and it was an Alabama bass. Big surprise. Um, you know, so those are those are proactive ways to try to get ahead of this, because from what we've seen from a lot of the time series data, the, by the first time they get to a density where you can first detect them, it's already too late. Right. Yeah, exactly. So as we start to wind down here today, do you guys have any final thoughts you'd like to leave each of our listeners with? You know, I think it's a two-part thing, right? So if you're a fisheries professional, 
this is just pointing out yet again the incredible gap in communications we have with our constituents. I mean, yeah, we're not the ones putting the fish in there, but it's pretty clear we're also the ones that are not telling them nearly strongly enough how bad this can be. And one of the reasons we wanted to put this paper out there is because this is going, I mean, the graphs are, are just eye-popping. You know, you don't have to be a scientist to read those trend lines and see what happens. So the paper's supposed to be there for people who, who don't want these things in their state. For instance, Arkansas or Oklahoma with Neosho smallmouth bass in there, uh, Missouri, Kentucky. They can actually grab this paper and show this to their bass clubs or whoever people on their uh, people on the uh, on the street, whatever you know, whatever gatherings of of you know, pretty much bass anglers they are. Look what happens, you know, and and, and I hope that at least helps a little bit. Now, on, on the other hand, as far as the anglers go, I mean, you know, if they're listening to this, don't move fish. We say it all the time. This is a great example, you know, a terrible, horrible example, but it's a great example of what happens when you move fish. And I say this point too in the in the paper at the very end because it just struck me. So I have friends, one of them is a co-author on the paper that has worked on snakeheads for a long time, for instance. Right now we have an Asian carp frenzy all over this country, you know, I mean, people spending all this time and for very good reasons. However, so far, all of the work that has been done on assessing the impacts of both of those groups of species have not shown anywhere near the impact that we have just shown from just one congener being put in a place where it's not supposed to be. And so, you know, this is yet a stark reality of, of, Sometimes the worst invader is the one that's in your own backyard. Yeah, I would, I would, I would echo those. Really, I mean, I, I don't think there's a whole lot more to say. I mean, I would, I would just say that, yeah, it's finding the communication medium that reaches people is always changing, and that's one of the struggles that we have. Is you know, what's the best way to, to get this message out? And so, you know, I think probably where we, and I know because I've had some conversations with folks that write articles for, and there was an article put in Bass Times, you know, the Bassmaster uh, publication, and there's some other mediums to try to get this out to the general public. And that's something that we'll continue to do. But as Steve said, if I could leave you with one message as, as, a, as a someone in the public who fishes, don't move fish, just don't. Um, if you catch them and you want to, and it's legal to take them home, take them home. If you want to release them, release them right where you got them. Because again, We've seen time and time again here in our state where, uh, in the case of Alabama bass, it probably didn't take a lot. You know, it only takes, uh, you know, a, a small number and uh, it to create huge problems and, and, and long lasting, deep impact problems. So, yeah, thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Zach. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Zach, for having us. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. If you'd like to reach Steve or Lawrence, you'll find their email addresses linked in the show description below. And if you'd like to get a hold of us at the Fisheries Podcast, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at FisheriesPod, or by email at feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. Hope that you've enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app, or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. 
And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by purchasing Fisheries Podcast logo merch available on Teespring. I'm Zach Crum, and thank you for listening to the 213th episode of the Fisheries Podcast. And don't forget, sometimes the worst invaders can be those in your own backyard. <laughs>